Good evening and welcome to our Bible study. We are continuing in the series that we have begun entitled Out of Bondage into Abundance. And if you're just joining us, the notes and recordings for these Bible studies are all available at our website, which is new-life-ministries.org. And again, this is Out of Bondage into Abundance. And we have now come to part two. There are actually seven parts that we're going to be breaking this down into, and we just began uh, part two last week. Um, let me give a real quick recap of what we've done so far. Uh, many, many chapters of the Old Testament are devoted to the story of Israel coming out of Egypt, going from their bondage and 400 years of slavery uh, through the wilderness and into the promised land, the land flowing with milk and honey. And we saw that God told them he was taking them out to bring them in. He took them out of bondage to bring them in to a place of richness, of abundance, a place that is referred to in the New Testament as God's rest. And <clears throat> we have been seeing how repeatedly the writers of the New Testament point back to that picture, and it really did happen. It's history, but it's much more than history. It's an example of something you find frequently in the Old Testament, where God uses a real situation, but it's actually just a shadow of something far greater to come. In this case, the picture of Israel coming out of bondage and moving into the promised land is a picture of our entire spiritual journey. And we are praying that as we proceed through this study, the Holy Spirit will open our eyes and really enable us to see beyond the history of the Old Testament and see the reality of what God is desiring to do in our lives. I once heard a teacher put it this way, the Old Testament is the New Testament concealed, and the New Testament is the Old Testament revealed. So, we are now, of course, under the New Covenant, and we are trusting in the Holy Spirit to give us revelation in the knowledge of Jesus Christ and in the plan and purpose that God has for each one of us. And so, we saw in the past couple of studies that just as Israel was in bondage. They were slaves in Egypt for 400 years. So the Bible says that you and I were once slaves of sin. Jesus said everyone who sins is a slave to sin. And Paul wrote extensively in Romans about the bondage, the slavery of sin, how we've been sold as slaves to sin, prisoners to the law of sin. And just as in the case of Israel in the Old Testament, they could not free themselves from their slavery. Matter of fact, they'd been there so long, I believe that you ultimately come into a mindset where you think this is all there is. You're born in slavery, you live in slavery, and you die in slavery. And you don't know of anything better than that. But the good news of the gospel, Jesus went on to say, you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And whom the Son sets free will be free indeed. So the good news is, there is a freedom from our slavery, just as there was a freedom for Israel in their bondage, but it was a supernatural deliverance that they needed. And so likewise, you and I need a supernatural deliverance to get free from sin. And if you're following in the notes, we are on page 10, 
And we began last time looking at four reasons why God purposed to deliver the Israelites out of their bondage. And by extension, we'll see that in each one of these cases, God has the same reason for wanting to deliver you and me out of the bondage of sin. We looked at the first two last time, and we'll look at the other two tonight. The first two we looked at, number one, the reason God delivered the Israelites was they were His covenant chosen people. And that's very important to understand. Because of Abraham and because of promises that God made to Abraham and his descendants, these were His people. And God calls them My people even while they're still in bondage, while they're still in Egypt, he refers to them as my people. And he wanted to deliver them so that they could be his treasured possession, his own people. Out of all the nations on the earth, he chose Israel to be his people. Not because they were a great and a mighty people, Matter of fact, he says, but because you were small, I chose you. And we saw, by extension, that in the New Testament, the Apostle Peter, writing to believers, he told them, you're a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people belonging to God. And after all is said and done, we didn't choose God, he chose us. Jesus told his original disciples, you didn't choose me. It wasn't your choice to follow me. I chose you. From your mother's womb, you were already chosen. And I ordained you. This was something in the heart and mind of God from before the foundation of the world. And we can barely understand these things. They're too high, too deep for us. Nevertheless, They're spelled out clearly in the Word of God. And if you're a believer tonight, understand, yes, you had to believe the Gospel, you had to respond to God's call, you had to repent, all that's true. But above and beyond all that, you're here tonight because God called you and God chose you. The second reason that God came down to deliver the Israelites was He heard their cry and he had compassion on them. We're told in Exodus 2 and 3 that God heard their crying, he saw their misery, and because he was concerned about their suffering, he told Moses at the burning bush, I'm coming down now to rescue them from the hand of the Egyptians. And likewise, for you and for me, under the new covenant now, Paul tells the Romans in Romans 10 and verse 13, everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. That's very specific. We must call on the Lord if we want salvation. We can't be silent about this. And after 400 years, the Israelites came to a place that you and I need to come to in our experience. We talked about this last time where we're just sick and tired of sin. We're sick and tired of our old life. We want out of this old way of life. They were tired of being slaves, and they began to groan. They began to cry out to God. And God has a way of bringing the sinner to a place where he is sick and tired of the parties, the dancing, the drugs, the immorality, and all the rest that sin in the world has to offer. The Bible says there is a little bit of sin, a little bit of pleasure offered by sin, but it's just for a short season. And after that season is over, we really begin to get tired and weary of the hangovers, of all of the other problems that sin brings into our life, and we realize the pleasure and the joy that we thought it was going to bring isn't really there 
and instead we begin to experience misery, disappointment, and yes, bondage, ever-increasing bondage. And in that bondage, when we cry out to God, when we sincerely call on the Lord, He says everyone who does that will be saved. Now, continuing with the third and fourth reasons why God wanted to deliver the Israelites, we come to point three on page 11, if you are following in the notes. And this is very important. God wanted them to be free so that they could serve and worship Him. God doesn't set us free so that we can be footloose and go do our own thing. He sets us free so that we can serve Him. And God knew as long as the Israelites were slaves in Egypt, they couldn't serve Him the way He wanted them to. And as you read through the book of Exodus, repeatedly we find God's challenge coming to Pharaoh. Let my people go so they may serve me or so they may worship me. And each time God sent a plague on Egypt, Pharaoh would temporarily soften his heart. He would call Moses back in and say, okay, I'm sorry, we have a deal. But each time he tried to compromise, and you find Moses was very firm in his decision that all of the Israelites, everything that pertained to them, had to be liberated out of Egypt because they were going out to serve the Lord. And it's interesting, in Exodus 8, um, I'm going to read a couple of verses that aren't found in the outline. <clears throat> Picking it up in Exodus 8, verse 25. This is after the plague of the flies. Pharaoh summoned Moses and Aaron and said, Go sacrifice to your God here in the land. Notice that. Pharaoh's finally willing to let them worship and serve God. The only thing is, stay here in Egypt and do it. But Moses said, that would not be right. The sacrifices we offer the Lord our God would be detestable to the Egyptians. And if we offer sacrifices that are detestable in their eyes, will they not stone us? We must take a three-day journey into the desert to offer sacrifices to the Lord our God as He commands us. Then Pharaoh said, I will let you go to offer sacrifices to, to the Lord your God in the desert, but you must not go very far. <laughs> now pray for me. So, in this first instance, Moses is trying to bar uh, sorry, Pharaoh is trying to bargain with Moses. Okay, I'll let you go, but don't go very far. Moses comes back and says, "No. We need to go out from this place at least a 3-day journey into the desert." Well, a little bit later, after more plagues, Pharaoh, and you read about this in Romans chapter 9, God was hardening Pharaoh's heart because he wanted to display his power and glory, not only to the Israelites, but to all the nations of the world. And so this wasn't any accident, these little changes of heart that, that Pharaoh was having. God was allowing him to harden his heart, then he would soften a little bit, harden, soften, harden, and each time a greater and a stronger plague comes, Pharaoh has this little temporary softening or repentance where he kind of changes his mind, and then as soon as the plague is lifted, he hardens his heart again. And if you come up to Exodus 10, after the plague of the locusts, 
the locusts ate up everything in the land, and again, Moses and Aaron are called back into Pharaoh's court in Exodus 10, starting at verse 8. Then Moses and Aaron were brought back to Pharaoh. Go, worship the Lord your God, he said. But, just who will be going? Moses answered, We will go with our young and old, with our sons and daughters, and with our flocks and herds, because we are to celebrate a festival to the Lord. Pharaoh starts to make another deal now. Pharaoh said, The Lord be with you. If I let you go, along with your women and children, clearly you are bent on evil. No, have only the men go and worship the Lord, since that's what you have been asking for. <coughs> then Moses and Aaron were driven out of Pharaoh's presence. So now Pharaoh says, okay, you can go, but only the men. I keep the women, I keep the children, and I keep all the livestock here in bondage in Egypt. Well, Moses wasn't happy about that, so another plague comes, and after the plague of darkness, again, Pharaoh calls Moses in, and in Exodus 10, verse 24, Pharaoh summoned Moses and said, Go, worship the Lord, even your women and children may go with you. Only leave your flocks and herds behind. But Moses said, You must allow us to have sacrifices and burnt offerings to present to the Lord our God. Our livestock, too, must go with us. Not a hoof is to be left behind. We have to use some of them in worshiping the Lord our God, and until we get there, we will not know what we are to use to worship the Lord. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he was not willing to let them go. Pharaoh said to Moses, Get out of my sight. Make sure you do not appear before me again. The day you see my face, you will die. Just as you say, Moses replied, I will never appear before you again. So, there's this deal-making, this compromising between Pharaoh and Moses, and it's very similar to what goes on between us and the devil. Those of us that are saved, maybe we have children or other family members that aren't saved, the devil says, okay, you can go, but I'm keeping your children. I'm keeping the rest of your family members here in bondage with me. And we have to be just like Moses. We have to be firm. We have to be bold. We have to understand what God's purpose is. He wants the whole family to come out. He doesn't want a hoof left behind. I like that verse. Not a hoof left behind. Everything is coming out because everything that pertains to us is needed to fulfill this purpose. Let them go so they may serve me. That's very, very important. I can't stress this enough. It's probably the most important of all the reasons we're looking at. If you want to get free, make sure your motives are right. Let me repeat that. If you want to get free from some bondage, addiction, alcohol, drugs, whatever it may be, then make sure your motive is in line with God's motive. I want to get free because I want to serve God. I want to worship God. I want to fulfill my destiny in God now, and I can't do it here in Egypt. I can't do it so long as I'm in this bondage. Now, coming over to the New Testament, we see something very similar again. It was for this very reason that God sent Jesus Christ into the world. And if you turn to Luke chapter 1, starting at verse 67, 
This is when Zechariah, <coughs> the father of John the Baptist, began to prophesy. And his prophecy is very profound. Luke 1, beginning at verse 67. His father Zechariah was filled with the Holy Spirit and prophesied, Praise be to the Lord, the God of Israel, because he has come and has redeemed his people. He has raised up a horn of salvation for us in the house of his servant David. This is, of course, referring to the coming Messiah. As he said through his holy prophets of long ago, salvation from our enemies and from the hand of all who hate us, to show mercy to our fathers and to remember his holy covenant, the oath he swore to our father Abraham. And pay close attention now to verses 74 and 75. What exactly is this oath? What is this covenant that he made to Abraham and the fathers that he's now remembering as he's about to bring his own son into the world? What was the purpose for Christ coming into the world? Verse 74, to rescue us from the hand of our enemies and to enable us to serve him. King James says to deliver us out of the hands of all, all of our enemies so that we may serve him without fear in holiness and righteousness before him all our days. You and I need to grab hold of that covenant promise. God wants to rescue us from the hand of all of our enemies and he wants to enable us to serve him. So just as the word of the Lord came forth in Egypt to Pharaoh, let my people go so that they may serve me, so God has declared through an oath that in sending his son into the world, it was to deliver us, set us free, rescue us from every bondage, every chain, every oppression, every enemy, anything that would hinder us from serving God. It does not say, and note this very carefully, it does not say God sent Jesus to set me free so I can now go out and pursue all of my own ambitions. That's where a lot of people get tripped up. They like the deliverance part, but then they want to do their own thing. And then they wonder why they end up back in bondage. God sets us free, specifically, so that we can now serve Him and do His will. It doesn't work the other way. Freedom without serving God brings us back into more bondage. So, the third reason is a very important one. Set free to serve God. Fourth and final reason why God purposed to deliver the Israelites, and we've talked about this already, he was bringing them out of bondage to take them into a new place, Canaan, the promised land. They had to be translated from one place to another place. And it's very interesting the New Testament almost uses those very words in Colossians. It says, he wants to translate us out of darkness, out of the bondage and dominion of darkness, and translate us into the kingdom of his Son. Alright, let's look at a few verses here. Exodus 6, verses 6 to 8. Therefore say to the Israelites, I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you 
with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God, who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Verse 8, very important. And I will bring you into the land I swore with uplifted hand to give to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob. I will give it to you as a possession. I am the Lord. Twofold promise. I will bring you out, and I will take you in. I'm going to bring you out of bondage, and I'm doing it because I want to translate you back to the place where you belong, back to Canaan, back to the land promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Now, as you read through this whole story in Exodus, and if you haven't read it recently, I would strongly recommend reading at least the first, oh, 20-some chapters of Exodus. But in the first chapters of Exodus, leading up to chapter 12, we find that there were nine different attempts to release the Israelites from Pharaoh's yoke of slavery. Nine different plagues came upon Pharaoh in Egypt, and each one was successively more severe, more powerful, and as we mentioned earlier, it would bring a temporary change of heart and a little bit of a softening to Pharaoh, but then he would immediately change his mind, harden his heart again, and keep them in bondage. So after the first nine plagues, after those first nine attempts were made to release the Israelites from slavery, they were still in bondage. <clears throat> it's only when we come to this tenth and final plague that Israel is set free. And very significantly, this wasn't a plague of flies or gnats or locusts or darkness. This was through the blood of a sacrificial lamb. Very important. Man, is this important. Nine different plagues could not break Pharaoh's yoke, but the blood of the Passover lamb liberated two and a half million Jews in one single night. That's powerful. In the tenth and final plague, what God did to free the Israelites is very significant. And we're going to study this very slowly and very carefully because every part of the story is significant and important. And remember, to introduce this whole section, we saw in 1 Corinthians 5... Paul connects the Passover story in the Old Testament with our experience in Christ. For he says there, Christ, our Passover lamb, is sacrificed for us. Therefore, let us keep the feast. There is a Passover feast that we're going to learn about here in Exodus 12. It is just a shadow of the real Passover feast that you and I now keep as believers in Jesus Christ. He is the true Passover lamb. The lambs that they used in Egypt were just foreshadowing the real Passover lamb, which was Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sins of the world. Now, in Exodus 12, and this is the chapter we're going to be in a lot, we read about this tenth and final plague, where God smote all of the firstborn in Egypt. Firstborn sons, firstborn livestock, firstborn of everything, was killed by 
the judgment of God on Egypt. And in Exodus 12, uh, I want us to read verses 11, 12, and then I'll drop down to verses 29 and 30. Exodus 12, 11 and 12 first. This is how you are to eat it. And in context, it's talking about the Passover lamb. With your cloak tucked into your belt, your sandals on your feet, and your staff in your hand, eat it in haste. It is the Lord's Passover. On that same night, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals. I will bring judgment, and note this carefully, on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. God wasn't just smiting Pharaoh and his household. He wasn't just smiting the Egyptian families. He was smiting their animals. And most importantly, God is bringing judgment on the gods of Egypt. See, Egypt had many false gods that they worshipped. And God is now going to bring judgment on all of those different gods. And we don't have time in this Bible study to look at it, but actually a number of the plagues that came upon Egypt, some of those were gods that the Egyptians worshipped. And graphically, God was smiting those things that they worshipped as false gods. Now, drop down to verse 29. <clears throat> At midnight, the Lord struck down all the firstborn in Egypt, from the firstborn of Pharaoh, who sat on the throne, to the firstborn of the prisoner, who was in the dungeon, and the firstborn of all the livestock as well. Pharaoh and all his officials and all the Egyptians got up during the night, and there was loud wailing in Egypt, for there was not a house without someone dead. Wow. There was not a house without someone dead. The scriptures reveal to us that the firstborn represents the chief of strength in a family. And you find that in Psalm 105, verse 36. We're not going to turn there, but you can look it up on your own. God was smiting the chief of Egypt's strength by smiting all of their firstborn. In other words, this judgment signified that Pharaoh's stronghold his strength, his dominion over God's people has been broken. The firstborn has been put to death. The stronghold of Pharaoh has been smitten. And in the same way, through Jesus Christ and through his shed blood on the cross as the true Passover lamb, the the strength of sin, the, the dominion and the yoke of slavery to sin was broken. That's good news. That's very good news. That the dominion of sin has been broken. Now, the same night that God smote all of the firstborn of Egypt... He saved all of the Israelites. And he did it in a very peculiar way. He had each Israelite family, and you can study the details of this on your own in Exodus 12. You're probably familiar with it. He had each Israelite family take a lamb, and they were to kill, sacrifice that lamb, take the blood from the lamb and paint it over top of their door. 
What a strange thing. Painting blood over the doorway. But it was very significant. Because the reason it's called the Passover, and we'll read this in just a moment, when God saw that blood over a doorway, he would pass over that house. And he would jump to the next house. And remember, he's coming through Egypt bringing judgment, death, and destruction to every single house. We just read, there was not a house without someone dead. And so when God's destroying angel came to a house, if it was an Egyptian house, then the destroyer went in and smote the firstborn of everything in that house. Only when the destroying angel saw the blood of the Passover lamb had been applied over the doorway, then God passed over that house. This is very important, and I can't stress this section enough. I don't think a lot of Christians fully understand this part, and that's why I want to emphasize this. A lot of people don't understand what really happened when Jesus died on the cross. They think he was just being a nice guy, and he was showing how much he loved all of us, and he was dying for our sins so we could all go to heaven. Well, all that's true, but there's something much more powerful and much more profound that is clearly seen in the Old Testament Passover, and we're going to find it's clearly seen in the New Testament as well. All right, back to Exodus 12, reading verses 12 and 13 again. <clears throat> On that same night, I, this is God speaking, I will pass through Egypt and strike down every firstborn, both men and animals, and I will bring judgment on all the gods of Egypt. I am the Lord. The blood, and that's the blood that they were told to paint or apply over their doorway, the blood will be a sign for you on the houses where you are. And when I see the blood, I will pass over you. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Every word is important there. Why was there blood on the doorpost? Was it for Pharaoh to see? Nope. Had nothing to do with Pharaoh. Was it for other Israelites to see? Nope. Had nothing to do with other, other Israelites. The blood on the door was to be seen by one and only one. It was for God to see. When God saw the blood of that Passover lamb, then and only then did he pass over that house. No other reason to pass over a house, only when he saw the blood. That's why it's called Passover. God was passing over the Israelite homes that had obeyed the instructions given to them through Moses to take a lamb, slay it, and put the blood over the doorposts. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Okay, follow along here. No destructive plague will touch you when I strike Egypt. All because of the blood. No other reason. Now, verse 23 in the same chapter. When the Lord goes through the land to strike down the Egyptians, he will see the blood on the top and sides of the door frame and will pass over that doorway and will not permit the destroyer to enter your houses and strike you down. Verse 27. 
God was instructing the Israelites later on when your children or your grandchildren ask, what's all this about? This is what you're to tell them. Tell them, it is the Passover sacrifice to the Lord who passed over the houses of the Israelites in Egypt and spared our homes when he struck down the Egyptians. Now, Here's the point I want to make, and this is very, very important. When God passed over a house, He was sparing them from His judgment, from His wrath, and from His destruction. He wasn't passing over the house because they were nice guys, or He liked the color of their roof, or... They had done some good deeds that week. Had nothing to do with any of that. One and only reason why they were spared from this terrible judgment and destruction that was coming to every single house in Egypt. When I see the blood, I will pass over you. Now, in the same way, God provided an escape from his wrath and judgment for sin through the blood of Jesus Christ, the true Passover lamb. Follow this very carefully. The Passover lamb, Jesus Christ, was shedding his blood on the cross for one and only one to see. It was for his heavenly Father to see that blood. And when he sees the blood, then and only then will he pass over your life and my life. Otherwise, what do we deserve? Judgment, death, and destruction. Just as every Egyptian house suffered death, judgment, and destruction. Only those houses that were passed over were spared. Now, let me reread these verses in the New Testament. 1 Corinthians 5, verses 7 and 8. Paul, writing to the Christians in Corinth, says, Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast. Remember, in the Passover celebration, the Israelites had to get all the yeast, all the leaven, out of their house. Well, Paul's not talking about literal yeast. He's using that as a metaphor, as a shadow, as is the rest of the picture. Get rid of the old yeast, that you may be a new batch without yeast, as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the feast, keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness. See, he's not talking about literal yeast like what you get in the package to make bread. The yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, unleavened bread, which is the bread of sincerity and truth. Another important note that I want to make right here, by no coincidence or accident, you read through the four Gospels and you find in every one of them, Christ was crucified at the very time of the Jewish Passover, thus fulfilling in every way the Old Testament shadow as being God's true Passover lamb. He even celebrated the Passover feast with his disciples the night before his crucifixion. And in that last supper with his disciples, he revealed the true meaning to them of what he was doing. In Matthew 26, verses 17 and onwards, 
It says, On the first day of the Feast of Unleavened Bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, Where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, Go into the city to a certain man and tell him, The teacher says, My appointed time is near. I am going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your home. Verse 19. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them and prepared the Passover. Dropping down to verse 26. While they were eating, Jesus took bread and gave thanks and broke it and gave it to his disciples saying, Take and eat. This is my body. Then he took the cup, gave thanks, and offered it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Just as blood was being shed by the Israelites, the blood of little lambs, the animal, so the true Lamb of God is telling His disciples, I am about to become the real Passover Lamb, and it is my blood that is going to seal the covenant that guarantees your sins will be forgiven. Now, we come to a very important New Testament passage and I want to finish here for tonight emphasizing this point that Christ being referred to by Paul as the Passover Lamb it draws this whole picture from the Old Testament into the New Testament. What is he passing over? Well, again, it's very clear in Exodus 12 God was passing over that house because he saw the blood of the Lamb. Well, why was he passing over it? He was sparing them from his wrath, from his judgment, and from the destruction that was entering every house that did not have the blood on the doorway. I want to read from Romans 5, verses 6 through 9. Romans 5, 6 through 9. <clears throat> it says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous man, though for a good man someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates His own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And follow very carefully verse 9. Since we have been justified by His blood, how much more shall we be saved from God's wrath through Him. What? Saved from God's wrath through Him? I thought Jesus was dying for me because God loved me so much. Well, yes, God loved you, but God was also extremely angry with every one of us because of our sin. So much so that the Bible says the wrath of God is already upon the sinner. It's already hanging over the sinner like a dark cloud, and there's only one thing that can cause that wrath to pass over him. It's the blood of Jesus Christ. So, in your case and in my case, there's only one way that God's wrath, God's judgment, 
And yes, God's destruction for sin can possibly pass over our heads. It's when he sees the blood. And this is so powerful, and it really brings a tremendous strength into your salvation when you understand this. God didn't save me because I'm a nice person. God didn't save me because I'm spiritual or righteous or I've done some good things in my life. No, Christ died for us while we were still ungodly. Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Sinners can't do anything to rescue themselves from God's wrath. And so what's happening here, as God's perfect Passover lamb, Jesus is shedding his blood on the cross, just as that blood of the lamb in the Old Testament was being painted over the doorway, so the blood of Jesus Christ was being painted on the cross for the Father to see. And God the Father saw the blood of his Son. And Isaiah 53 says, He saw it and he was satisfied. God's justice, God's righteous demands were satisfied through the blood, through the sacrifice of his own Son. And so, when you and I understand what Paul is saying in 1 Corinthians 5, that Christ, my Passover lamb, was sacrificed for me, what we're really saying is, God was about to pour out his wrath on my life. God was about to destroy me because of my rebellion, because of my sin, because my mind was completely opposed to God. The Bible says the, the sinful mind is completely opposed to God. While I was in that state, God's wrath and judgment were about to fall on me when he saw the blood of his own son. And so when I call upon Jesus as my Passover lamb, what I'm really doing is I'm saying, Lord, I've applied the blood to my house. I've applied the blood of the cross over my heart and over my mind. As for me and my house, we're going to serve the Lord now. And our only claim to salvation is the precious blood of Jesus Christ. I love that hymn. What can wash away my sins? What can take away this wrath and judgment from my life? Nothing but the blood of Jesus. We are saved from God's wrath through the blood of Jesus Christ, God's Passover Lamb. And believe you me, God has a great deal of wrath against sin. You can read about it all the way through the book of Revelation. And soon and very soon, God is going to be pouring out that wrath on the earth and on every sinner who has not taken advantage of God's Passover lamb. And just as every house of the Egyptians had someone dead inside of it, so total death and judgment and destruction awaits the sinner who has refused to repent and come humbly to the cross, calling on the Lord, trusting in the blood of His covenant. You see, the old covenant has been done away with. It's been replaced with a new covenant. And Jesus was very clear in his last supper, this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. The whole new covenant is based not upon our good deeds, 
not upon our church attendance or Bible reading or prayer or fasting. Those are all great. We should do all of those things. But the foundation of the new covenant is blood. It's the blood of the Passover lamb. That's what sealed this new covenant. When God passes over your life and mine and spares us from his wrath. And, you know, uh, I want to read one other scripture that's not in the outline, but it's found in Ephesians chapter 2. Ephesians chapter 2, where Paul is reminding the Ephesians of where they once were and where God has now brought them through His great grace and love and mercy. Ephesians 2, starting with verse 1. As for you, you were dead. Paul says, you already were dead. You were dead in your transgressions and sins in which you used to live. Past tense, you used to live in those sins and you were actually dead. When you followed the ways of this world and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient. All of us also lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our sinful nature and following its desires and thoughts. Look at the next statement. Like the rest, we were by nature objects of wrath. While we were sinners, not only were we dead, separated from God, under the influence of the world and the spirit of the world and all that, but, and this is something a lot of believers miss, we were also objects of wrath. Well, objects of whose wrath? It's obvious that it can only be taken one way. We were objects of God's wrath. We were destined, just like the Egyptians, were destined to death, destruction, and the wrath of God being poured out upon them. We were destined to all of that. We were just waiting for God's wrath. But, verse 4, because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ, seated us with Him in the heavenly realms, in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. So, Summarizing this, we were saved from our sins, we were saved out of bondage, but equally and importantly, we were saved from God's wrath. And here's the most puzzling paradox of the gospel, perhaps. The God who saved us was also the God who was about to destroy us. And the God who saved us, saved us from His own wrath. That doesn't make any sense to the natural mind, but that's exactly what the New Testament says. And that's why God had to send His own Son into this world to be that perfect sacrifice, so that His Son could take all of the punishment all of the chastisement, all of the wrath 
that you and I deserved for our sins so that we could be spared, so that we could be saved. And if you look at all that Jesus went through leading up to his crucifixion, the beatings, the mockings, all of the persecution, and all of the suffering that he endured. If you read Isaiah chapter 53 carefully, you will see this same concept is very clearly expressed there. He was despised, rejected by men. He was wounded for our transgressions and all of that. But listen carefully to some of these words. Surely he took up our infirmities, carried our sorrows, yet we considered him stricken by God. Not stricken by Romans or Jews, not stricken by the soldiers, but stricken by God. Smitten by God and afflicted. He was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are all healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to his own way, and follow this carefully, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of us all. He was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth, and here it comes, he was led like a lamb to the slaughter. And as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. And here's the clincher. Isaiah 53, verse 10. Yet it was the Lord's will to crush him. What? This is God's own beloved Son. And it's saying it was His will to crush him and to cause him to suffer. And here's the reason why. And though the Lord makes His life a guilt offering, he will see his offspring and prolong his days, and the will of the Lord will prosper in his hand. After the suffering of his soul, he will see the light of life and be satisfied. Jesus was perfectly fulfilling the role of a sacrifice, a guilt offering, he was taking all the guilt, all the wrath, all of the punishment that you and I deserved. He was doing it in our place. And if you look at the cross, and you look at all that Christ endured, next time you read about it and think about it, you might see it a little bit differently, that this was a picture of God's wrath on sin. It was God punishing all of our sins, all of our wickedness, in the person of His own Son. Jesus was bearing all of that in one frail human body. No wonder when it was all over, the Bible says you couldn't even recognize Him as a human being. And this is powerful stuff. And the better you understand this, the more totally you can be free to serve and to worship your God. It was the Lord's will to crush him, to cause him to suffer, and to make him a guilt offering. Jesus was bearing not only my sins, but the punishment for my sins, so that God could pass over me with his judgment, with his wrath, and with his punishment for sin. Indeed, as the hymn says, Jesus paid it all. Let's praise God tonight. Let's thank him 
for so great a salvation. And yes, Christ, our Passover Lamb, is sacrificed for us. Let's pray. Father, in the name of Jesus, we understand a little better tonight that we richly deserved your wrath, your judgment, your punishment, and your destruction for all of our rebellions, all of our selfishness, all of our uncleanness, vileness, ungodliness, while we were still sinners, lost in darkness, you sent your Son to die for us and in our place, taking all of the condemnation, all of the punishment, all of the wrath and judgment for our sins. And indeed, we have a Passover lamb, just as the Israelites had in Egypt, that spared them from your wrath, and it was the key to their coming out of Egypt, being set free to serve you. And God, we understand tonight that nothing but the blood of Jesus Christ can break the chains, can break the bondages off our life. And Lord, I pray for each and every one on this phone line, anyone listening in the future to the recording, Lord, let the precious and the powerful blood of Jesus Christ break every chain, break every bondage, break anything that hinders us from coming out, from being free to serve the Lord our God. We are free, and we are free indeed through Jesus Christ to be your servants forever and forever. We thank you and we praise you tonight for this great salvation. Bless each and every one that's with us here tonight. Keep each and every one by the power of the blood of Jesus, by the power of your word, and by the power of your Holy Spirit. We ask it in Jesus' mighty name. Amen.